welcome to the ThinkCast from ThinkCon 2012. I'm Sarah Castor-Perry, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Michael Brooks, author of Free Radicals, The Secret Anarchy of Science. Michael, what are you going to be talking about this afternoon? Okay, I'm going to talk about um, what's in my book, which is about the anarchy of scientists, which is about really, you know, how they misbehave in ways that you don't expect. And and we've had this kind of image of scientists as very upright and trustworthy and, and reliable, and they do good things for the good of society. And actually, it's a little more, more nuanced than that. And they do get involved in sort of all kinds of things, you know, fraud, cheating, um, lying, fighting, you know, taking risks, you know, doing experiments without ethical approval, uh, but in a very good way, in a very positive way, in that it's, if you want to do something really extraordinary, you have to kind of bend the rules a bit. So what are some of the most wacky examples of scientists doing things that we wouldn't expect them to do? Well, one of the best known uh, is actually fairly recent um, from uh, Barry Marshall, who drank a, a cup full of bacteria in order to prove that these bacteria would cause stomach ulcers. And, you know, he won a Nobel Prize for this, nearly killed himself. And, you know, it was a very sort of ill-advised experiment in many ways. But it was the only way that he could get it to work. So he tried everything else. And this was a last resort. Um, and there's other people who, who you know, who take drugs in order to... So Carrie Mullis took psychedelic drugs, LSD, in order to be able to think differently and solve the problem of how to copy DNA efficiently. And so, you know, we don't kind of associate this kind of behaviour with scientists normally. And, and uh, you know, we have, we're in Cambridge, you know, Francis Crick and James Watson indulge in some quite questionable behaviour concerning appropriating other people's data, um, something that Crick later referred to as a burglary. And, um, and you know, sometimes these things are just what you have to do to get the job done and and so that's kind of you know there's some colorful stories do you think it's do you think it's a good thing to put this kind of information out there for people to know about in a kind of portraying a more honest view of scientists because i i know that the book has been quite controversial in a kind of should we really be discussing this kind of anarchy in science kind of thing. Well, I think absolutely we should be discussing it because what it shows is that scientists are human beings. And one of the big problems that we've had when we try and engage people with science is that they think of it as something that gets done by robots almost automatically, you know, without any human involvement. And actually, it's just as human and just as creative as, you know, art, writing, music, everything else. It's, it's one of the things that human beings do. And somehow it's been dehumanised. And, well, I say somehow, I mean, it's been a very systematic process of dehumanizing science so that it looks reliable and trustworthy it's a very big pr effort and so actually i think it's good to talk about this because you know suddenly it becomes something that human beings do and you know we won't have those kids dropping out saying well science isn't for me because i i like to do you know wacky creative things well actually there's nothing more wacky and creative than science in many ways but maybe not encouraging kids to drink random cups full of bacteria or i think some of the earlier scientists in the kind of 19th century they would experiment on themselves inject themselves with all kinds of drugs that they were trying to develop yeah i mean this is how the whole field of anesthesia got going it's by people just trying out different compounds and kicking each other's shins and seeing what worked and what didn't and the, the one of the classics the, the one of the anesthetics that's now used in in labor for women going into labor was um a group of scottish doctors who took this thing and woke up the next morning and didn't you know didn't remember anything about what had happened to them at all the night before but they realized this was a fantastic thing to use and then and it got queen victoria got word of this and she was the first to kind of use it in a medical way so um no i'm not encouraging that people necessarily do these things but i'm saying this is part of the story of science and we should talk about it and is it i mean i know the the h pylori drinking the bacteria was quite recent do you still think that this sort of 
slightly anarchic, doing things under the radar kind of way of doing things, do you think that's still quite common? Yeah, it is. When you look at the literature and people are, you know, people have done surveys of scientists on whether they do this. And it's very clear that lots of people do do things like um, try and sort of get round ethics committees or when they don't get approval or or they try and sort of seek approval in different ways or get approval after they've done the thing. And there's, you know, various examples I I give of that in the book. Some of them are badly motivated in that there are people that are doing doing experiments that shouldn't be done. Others, you know, it's very clear that ethics committees, for instance, you know, can get in the way of doing good science and they can make it very difficult to kind of actually get the job done. So um, it does still go on. You know, there was a survey in Nature a few years ago that, that in which scientists were polled about whether they use drugs to sort of help them think and things like this. And uh, I think it was uh, one-fifth of the scientists said that they do. You know, it's very high. You know, one-third of scientists say that they've committed some kind of malpractice or fraud in the last three years. You know, these things do go on, but it's just they, they're, they're very much under the radar. Do you think that there is a difference between telling people about the kind of crazy self-experimentation that people did and then also perhaps getting fraudulent use of data? Because I think, do you think we maybe need to be careful about that area because it might foster, sort of build on the, perhaps the distrust that people might have? One of the things about science is it's self-correcting and it's, its greatest strength in a sense is that you can't get away with just making up data because somebody else will come along and try and replicate your experiment and they'll fail and you'll get egg on your face. And so what, you know, what I'm not talking about is people just making up results. What I'm talking about is actually sometimes you know, your intuition tells you that something is true and the data doesn't really help you to make that case you know, in a cast iron way. And it's historically shown that scientists have actually gone with their intuition more when they're in these, these kind of situations. And what might be considered malpractice or fraud actually is just a way of getting the data to work. It's not as clean. Anyone who's done real science knows that data doesn't come out like you want it to. And, and, and like you know it even should. And experiments don't work all the time. And so, you know, your intuition actually plays a role in that. And, and there are lots of cases where people have done ver- perfectly good work, gone back, tried to replicate their own work, couldn't do it. And what we have to do is sift through. So I'm not talking about just making up results, making up cloning results, say, that, that you just didn't do the experiment. But we have to, I think, cut scientists some slack in terms of understanding the process isn't as clean and robotic and automatic as we'd like it to be. And, and I think we just have to acknowledge that. And finally, do you have a favourite story of any particular scientist that you think, okay, they were completely mad but completely brilliant? Oh, yeah, by far my favourite is a guy called Werner Forsman who did the first catheterization of the human heart. And uh, he basically, it's a very long story, but it involves all kinds of terrible anarchy where he, you know, he started dating the nurse who had the key to the operating theatre because he knew that that would get him in there. And he told her that he would do it on her and then he did it on himself, you know, just to, to show that, you know, I want to say he's a, he's a hero. Um, but he, you know, he had to use fraud to publish the research. He got into a fight with the x-ray technician who didn't want him to be taking, who didn't want to, to take the x-ray to show that, that he'd put the thing in his heart. And of course, you know, the fact that he just sat there and sort of pushed this tube all the way up his arm into his heart um, is just quite extraordinary. It kind of shows you the lengths to which scientists will go to if they think they've got a good idea. But he was denied all permission by his boss. Every time he tried to sort of get this done, he said, you know, we could do it on a corpse, we could do it on a dying patient. He was just given a blanket no for everything, but he just went ahead and did it anyway. And I think that's, you know, what people don't appreciate about scientists is, is they're kind of a bit like special forces. You know, they will, <laughs> they're kind of maverick. They do things because they just see the possibility of doing it and nothing can put them off. Thank you for downloading this ThinkCon 2012 ThinkCast. Till next time.